Welcome to This Just In, the show bringing you the latest advancements in healthcare, strategy, innovation, and public policy. And now, for the fastest voice in healthcare, here's your host, Justin Barnes. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to This Just In. I'm your host, Justin Barnes. In these segments, I'll bring the latest advancements in healthcare, strategy, innovation, and public policy. As always, we're broadcasting from the This Just In studios on the Business Radio X Network as well Healthcare Now Radio Network. For this episode, my 258th episode, we're very fortunate to have two healthcare pioneers and healthcare leading authors, Dr. John Halamka and Paul Serrato. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. And thanks so much. It's great to have you guys back. Um, I think it's been, um, actually, John's my most frequent guest, as I brought up uh, on our last show, which is great, but I think it's been two years uh, since you guys have been on the show. Do you know that? Yes. Yeah, wow. Like- you know, I sometimes say that, you know, 2021 was the longest decade of my life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, I think um, that's a very good point. Actually, we, we did HIMS. I think we were at HIMS 21 together, but since we recorded a show about the book, it's been a couple of years, but I think we all, we did record together. At 20, uh, hymns 21. Um, so uh, it hasn't been quite, uh, yeah, but two years for the book. So very excited. This is your sixth book together. Is that correct? Yes. Fantastic. And we're here to discuss the new book, Redefining the Boundaries of Medicine. So before we dive in there, though, John, where are you calling in, my friend? Uh, so in Sherbourne, Massachusetts, though lots of travel. So, uh, you know, it's uh, about five cities this month. So you never know where I'm going to be. Wow. And um, how's let's how's our very favorite Unity Farm Sanctuary? Well, you know, as the weather improves, trail building becomes the next activity. We have four and a half miles of trails. We'll be adding about another mile of trails this year. So uh, no rest for anyone. Wow. So people come and actually, so when you say trails, trails for the, the animals or trails for people to come and hike and walk through or what's that? Yeah, so we're open to the public, right? Mm-hmm. And so we are a public benefit organization, and these trails are open for anyone in the public to explore uh, terrain from wetlands to uplands. Uh, and we do uh, have the animals a bit separated from the trails, so no one's fingers get bitten <laughs> should they stray too far. That's terrific. And uh, yeah, I, I love the Unity Farm Sanctuary. I've been supporting it for a while now. And I do, uh, you know, let my, my audience know, please, guys, it's a great thing to look into. It's a great service, as, as John brought up in our last show. You know, three cows were just chopped off at, on that day. So, you know, th- they do a great service for the whole community, the whole Northeast, and I'm sure even farther. How far out do you guys span? I mean, how far are you guys contacted from to, to help and support, John? Uh, So although we're mostly New England based, it's very common that we're in Kentucky, Ohio, North Carolina. So we have a number of our staff in the Unity Farm, truck and trailer driving all over the eastern U.S. Wow. Wow. It's a great service that you guys are doing, you and Kathy. So, Paul, where are you coming calling in from, my friend? Oh, I'm about an hour north of uh, New York City in a town called uh, Warwick, New York. Excellent. Beautiful part of the country, I know for sure. So I'm excited to have you both back on air, discuss this new book, Redefining the Boundaries of Medicine. Um, But, uh, you know, as I mentioned on our last show for In For My New Listeners, I thought this book was fascinating as it challenges all of us to rethink and reimagine how healthcare uh, is delivered and how we participate in the 21st century. Um, You know, whether you're a clinician, administrator, 
digital health innovator or even a patient, you know, this book has been written to, it's very easy to understand uh, what's possible in a high-tech, high-touch healthcare system where thankfully and excitedly, the patient is front and center. So, you know, kudos to that. I know a lot of work went into this. It was, has you guys been writing this for basically the last couple of years? Oh, this one took about a year. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I, I thought it was, I was, I was surprised. I really, I thought it was going to be a little bit above my head and and no, but the way you guys wrote it, uh, you know, it, it's for everybody inside or in, outside of healthcare. If it's not, you know, if you're a patient or just someone who wants to think about care, you know, obviously a lot of us should be patients um, because we want to start managing our care no matter how old we are. Um, but, uh, you know, it's applicable to everyone. Um, it's very understandable. So I do highly recommend, you know, whether you're inside or outside of healthcare to, to really check this book out. Um, so, you know, we touched on some really cool components last time, uh, and even some controversial stuff, which is really, really cool, but the book discusses the lack of interdisciplinary care. You know, what are you referring to in that, uh, in that way? And, and how do you solve this problem? So we give an example in that particular chapter, um, LEDs have become uh, ubiquitous. Everybody uses them and they save lots and lots of energy. Uh, they're very cost effective. Mm -hmm. The inventor who came up with the blue light LED um, forgot to talk to his healthcare buddies, <laughs> so to speak. And as it turns out, blue light can be quite harmful to uh, people in terms of affecting their uh, wake um, sleep cycle. Uh, so had there been some kind of a collaboration between healthcare and uh, materials scientists, chances are that that would have been uh, addressed, uh, addressed initially so that uh, we wouldn't have the kinds of uh, insomnia problems that a lot of people get uh, mm. sitting around uh, in blue light. Fascinating. Well, and, and let me give you just a case example. And Justin, you know, I have no privacy of any kind because... <laughs> You know, I, I was one of the early folks sequenced in the Human Genome Project, so all of my data has been public for 15 years. I have glaucoma. Now, my glaucoma has caused a little bit of visual loss in the left eye. And Mayo Clinic said, hmm, that's a little more visual loss than we would expect with run-of-the-mill glaucoma. So actually, let's do an MRI of your orbits in your brain and then let's have you meet with a neurologist and an ophthalmologist mm. and look at the potential causes of this. And actually, let's have you get a lumbar puncture to look at the pressure of the fluids in your brain to understand if maybe you could be getting some sort of physical compression of a nerve. So it was that disciplinary, multidisciplinary working together that came up with the conclusion Actually, I have glaucoma. It just, you know, it turns out mine is a bit of a variant. Yeah. No, right. so, so, so basically what, what we're saying is that uh, specialists are not speaking to other specialists and specialists are not speaking enough to uh, primary care docs. The example that comes to my mind because my background is as a nutritionist is you know, if you're a GI doc um, and you want to refer your patient to a nutritionist, uh, that might be a problem if your organization blocks that kind of a communication. Right. Uh, recently, the um, 24th Century Cures Act has been has forbidden uh, data blocking. So hopefully, that kind of uh, barrier will uh, go away. Yeah, I mean, I think you. In, how we actually closed the show last time. You guys are talking about you know the importance of collaboration, and I think that just goes back into you know to this component and collaborative care and. Um, you know, obviously you talk about the, the Cures Act and how we are 
interoperating in lots of different ways in healthcare. And we're trying to, you know, limit, obviously, um, you know, fuel up interoperability and limit any data blocking. So I think it's, it's great, but also just collaborating in general, certainly around patient care. Um, you know, you guys hit that uh, perfectly. So another section is on healthcare misinformation, how widespread it is. You know, how do we address this without alienating patients? Yeah, that's, that's the issue, not to alienate patients. Uh, uh, I, th I think it's important to make to create an emotional bond with patients. Um, and uh, there's lots of research to support that, which we talk about in the book. Um, but at the same time, we also have to admit that uh, medicine has made a lot of mistakes over the centuries. And the more you take that humble attitude with patients, the more inclined they are to trust you. Mm -hmm. Now, when you you come across as a father knows best uh, patriarch, uh, people get turned off by that. But if they see that you and your your your, your uh, colleagues are fallible, um, there's more of a uh, an emotional bond that's likely to be created. And once that bond is is created, they are more likely to accept um, contrary ideas like. Uh, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, smoking is bad for you or, or whatever, um, they're more likely to accept advice that they don't want to hear if they already have a, an emotional bond with you. Excellent. And this idea of making sure we monitor our algorithms for misinformation, really important. Paul and I recently wrote about the NIST risk management framework, which suggests that AI should be valid, reliable, safe, secure, resilient, accountable, transparent, explainable, <laughs> interpretable, privacy enhanced, and fair with harmful bias removed. Because if we are publishing, as Paul suggests, um, our experience from the 1980s to 2020 on the internet, and then AI in 2023 says, well, I've read the entire internet and here's what you should do, <laughs> it could do harm. <laughs> Excellent point. That's great. Paul, you mentioned something about smoking being bad for you. Is, where'd you read that? <laughs> yeah, it's just my imagination, right? <laughs> uh, but believe it or not, you know, there are a lot of people who are still convinced that that uh, it's not harmful. Uh, and one, just to, to digress a little bit, yeah. one of the stories that we mentioned in, in the book is uh, one of the uh, journalists uh, we looked at uh, visited the Flat Earth Society's convention. <laughs> and believe it or not, there are thousands of people who still believe that the Flat Earth Right. is reality. And the journalist's uh, point of view was, you know, it's easy to go in with the attitude, these people are a bunch of idiots, right. and, and to get and to send that message, but he didn't. He came in respectful to mm -hmm. their beliefs and basically asked subtle questions to get them to think, well, maybe, maybe there's not enough evidence to support this. So we can learn from somebody who has that type of... Uh, humility and, and respect for other people's beliefs, regardless of how bizarre they might be. Right. I agree completely. Um, in, in the book, and this is a big piece for me personally, is you advocate for more emphasis on lifestyle management and certainly less on pharmacotherapy. You know, how, you know, in your opinion, how realistic is that in today's healthcare ecosystem? John? Well, it's hard is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> so hard. Justin, you and I, probably didn't work together 25 years ago when I had a body mass index of 32 and weighed 275 pounds. Right. 
And so 25 years ago, my clinician said, you know, you're obese. Oh, shocking. I'm obese. I didn't think of myself as obese. And he said, but don't worry, you know, we're going to give you $700 a month of metabolic poisons mm. and with, you know, statins and ACE inhibitors and beta blockers, you can eat, you know, keep eating those Big Macs. <laughs> Uh, to which I said, how about this? I have a lifestyle problem, not a medical problem. Right. And in six months, I lost 100 pounds. And I have been a vegan, strict vegan, since that time. And I've not gained or lost a pound uh, since 25 years ago. And because of that, what does that imply? I am the dream patient of healthcare payers. Because in effect, in 25 years, I basically had no claims. <laughs> so true. That's excellent. Yeah. And, and just to follow up on that, I think that a lot of docs just don't push hard enough. You know, it's very easy to, to keep patients happy by saying, well, we'll, we'll give you that statin, rather mm -hmm. than saying, listen, you want to survive the next five years, change your lifestyle. You know, that's not an, an easy message. To, to, to deliver, especially if they can go to the next uh, practice and right. hear their ears tickled by, uh, you know, by, by the push for, for, uh, for drug therapy. So um, the, the example that, that comes to my mind is uh, diabetes. You know, mm -hmm. oftentimes uh, the road to, of least resistance is to prescribe metformin. Uh, and it's almost given out like candy these days, but uh, there are uh, risks to it. It can it cause B12 deficiency, which in, in turn can cause uh, anemia and dementia. It's rare that the average physician will tell them, yeah, okay, you can take metformin, but keep in mind some of the possible adverse effects as opposed to changing your diet, right. uh, seeing the, the registered uh, dietitian that I recommend. So it, it's like John says, it's not easy, but it's the best way to go for many patients. Anyway. Yeah. And, and I would say by far, I mean, I'm, I'm a subscriber to this about uh, seven years ago, I went on a journey to lose 30 pounds just because more to get more into my ideal weight. Um, obviously save a lot of money in healthcare and specifically, um, you know, eat much healthier, have a lot more energy. And, uh, and this is how I talk to my friends. I mean, my friends who, if anyone, you know, they're overweight or obese, I bring it up to them very, you know, gently, but persistently, because, uh, you know, I approach it from not only the health aspect, the energy aspect, uh, but also the financial aspect. You are going to spend a lot more in healthcare than I am, as I tell them. I mean, I'll probably four to 10 X what I spend, uh, you will spend. So, so yeah. Um, and certain so diabetes is one example, but go ahead. Yeah, please. So, so the message has to be gentle, but firm. Yes. Gentle, but firm. Yep. Very true. So uh, for those tu just tuning in, we're speaking with authors Paul Serrato and Dr. John Holomka about their new book, Redefining the Boundaries of Medicine. So let's dive in a little bit. You both with Mayo Clinic. So how is the Mayo Clinic platform addressing the need for unbiased and, va and validated AI algorithms? Oh, that's, that's John's. <laughs> okay. So here's again a challenge. Yep. Algorithms depend on training data. And when I describe training data, I use three variables. I say depth. And that's the different kinds of data, structured, unstructured, telemetry, images, genomics, digital pathology, breadth, the number of patients, and spread, the heterogeneity of those patients. You need people who are tall and short, fat and thin, old and young, right? And so no one organization is going to have enough depth 
breadth, and spread to produce algorithms that are generalizable for the entire population. And so you need what we call a distributed data network. Organizations around the world willing to be part of a virtuous ecosystem so that algorithms can be locally tuned. Eric Horvitz, who's the chief scientist of Microsoft, uh, and I were chatting about, there's no algorithm that is going to be developed, let's say, in some urban center, and then will work perfectly well in some rural center. It just mm -hmm. won't happen. <laughs> so you better have this virtuous network of data, de-identified, privacy protected, secured, of course. Yep. If we're going to develop algorithms and locally tune them to patients in every part of the globe. And so Mayo Clinic Platform has facilitated that model. And so far, we have about 25 million de-identified birth-to-death records of patients across multiple health systems. Hopefully, by the end of 2023, it will be closer to 100 million. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. What are some of the solutions you guys are working on there at the Mayo Clinic Platform? Yeah, th this is what impresses me. Uh, I've been with Mayo for two years, and I, I still am uh, <laughs> bored by what's going on here. Um, so uh, digital pathology is now becoming a reality at Mayo. Um, digital endoscopy, uh, uh, I work with a, a doc uh, named uh, Mike uh, Wallace, who's a, a, a gastroenterologist at Mayo, and he's done some really impressive work on what's called CAD, computer-assisted diagnosis of mm -hmm. uh, colorectal cancer. And the, the algorithms are really all there to improve um, the uh, detection of colorectal cancer. So the, these, that's, th those are two examples. And the third one that um, jumped out at me was uh, radiology. We're jumping into the field of radiology and speeding up the auto-contouring process. Now, what that's about is when a patient has to have a, a radiation therapy, uh, let's say they, there's a, a tumor in the neck or the head, uh, the uh, radiation, radiation beam obviously cannot, does not want, you do not want to hit uh, uh, healthy tissue. So they have to map the, uh, the head so that uh, the beam only hits a specific part where the tumor is. Yep. That's a very long, tedious process. And with the help of, of the Mayo Clinic, uh, digital scientists, we've come up with a way to drastically reduce the amount of time it takes to do the, the auto contouring process. And, you know, time is money, so uh, it's Excellent. working. And just to, just to add some numbers to what Paul has said, I am a 61-year-old person, so I care a lot about accuracy and colonoscopy. Yes, yes. <laughs> the, do you know that across this country, Lesions on colonoscopy are missed by humans 20% of the time. But with an algorithm augmenting the human, this Mayo algorithm that Paul described, the miss rate's 3%. So I could contend that five years from now, practicing endoscopy without an algorithm will be malpractice. <laughs> wow. That's fascinating. And I, I completely agree. Wow. So um, you, one thing you've been a pioneer, John, uh, in, in Mayo Clinic, I believe that in, in, at large, but the hospital at home movement, um, and you guys have obviously immersed yourself in it, but tell us a lot about that. Tell us a little bit about that. That's It's a fascinating concept. Obviously, I believe there's a lot of opportunity there, savings, innovation, but what are your thoughts? 
Yeah. So let me tell you a very quick story that puts it in context. So about oh, 15 years ago, my father-in-law was on a camping trip with me in the Sierra in California, and he developed pneumonia. Now, I'm an emergency physician, so we were in a cabin at 9,000 feet in the Sierra, and I said, oh, you just need Q24 injections of ceftriaxone and some oxygen, and you're going to be fine. So I treated him, and he was in his 80s, <laughs> for community-acquired pneumonia in a cabin in the Sierra for under $500. His outcome was fabulous. <laughs> And he, of course, sat enjoying birdsong and wonder, you know, watching lakes and clouds. I then went to bill the insurance company for the $500 of antibiotics and oxygen. They said, well, we would have funded a $20,000 ICU stay, but oh, $500 for care in a cabin? Oh, can't do that. So what it illustrates is a whole lot of disease that you can treat really well in a home. Yes. That's going to result in, as Paul has suggested, spirituality is better. You're surrounded by family and your pets. You eat your own food. You know, you don't have hospital-acquired infections or falls. And that's what we've done to large scale. Now, discharging over 20,000 patients across the U.S. from their living rooms after serious and complex disease has been treated in their home. Wow. You've discharged 20,000 people? We have. Now, Mayo Clinic, you have to understand, start small, think big, move fast. <laughs> we started with one patient <laughs> and then learned what worked. Supply yeah. chain, staffing, safety, remote patient monitoring, and then 10, and then 100, <laughs> and then 1,000. <laughs> wow. yeah, and so this model has proven and we study every patient's entire process to learn from every patient going through uh, advanced care at home. That's the name of the program. Yep. Love it. Fantastic. So following kind of along this line, um, you guys have got a new master's degree program, Mayo and Northeastern University. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so uh, John and I are both involved in teaching that. Uh, um, the, uh, the dean of the program, um, approached me. Actually, I originally approached him and says, well, I, I wouldn't mind teaching one of the, the lectures. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, how about doing a whole course? Said, okay, <laughs> that's great. So uh, he asked me to do a course on data mining and machine learning. So that will involve uh, explaining the, what we call the AI toolkit, which are all the various modeling techniques, um, and going step by step through um, the various uh, tools that can be used. And then finally, giving them a, a, a project in which they create an operational plan to actually put in place a, um, an algorithm that would fix some administrative problem or some clinical problem in their hospital. So kind of a, a real world application of what, what uh, I'm teaching there in the course. Wow. And so Justin, let me tell you the philosophy here. So as I say, as a 61-year-old person, I look at the next 20 years of my career as mentoring those who will replace me. Amen. Mm -hmm. And that is, I don't want to publish more papers. I don't want to seek fame and fortune. I want to make a difference and leave something behind. Yeah. <laughs> and in this teaching, uh, in effect, you take the 40 years of experience and all the things you've ever done wrong, and you make sure those who will replace you have the benefit of your experience. 
No, it's, it's fantastic. So what, what topic are you specifically speaking on, John? Uh, so I get to start with, so here's this whole industry. Where did it come from? What did we learn? <laughs> A broad overview of healthcare, digital health, and uh, health science so that the, you know, there's a context for the rest of the course. I love it. And um, yeah, my indoctrination was a little different. It was more of just, I was very fortunate, got into, I graduated college, wasn't sure exactly what I want to do the rest of my life. Someone saw I was doing a lot of work in the military and at business and Rotary Club and um, volunteer work. And they said, come work with us in this health IT industry. And so it was a great HBO and company McKesson back in the day. It was in the nineties, but that was my indoctrination. And it was, you know, I wish I had taken your course or, you know, if there was a course back then I would have learned a lot more, but I went pretty quickly on the fly and it was the best industry by far for me. And I highly recommend people look at not only this course, but certainly health IT, digital health in general, so much opportunity, healthcare gets bigger every single day. The impact on our personal health gets better every single day if we take it seriously, if we follow some of the best practices. So, um, you know, I think it's fantastic. Any um, parting thoughts, John, real quick before we close the show the next minute or so? Well, I just, as we've been chatting about, our healthcare ecosystem and innovation are moving so fast. <laughs> mm -hmm. One of the things you have to make sure of is that we as humans are going to be able to manage the change. Kind of a digital Hippocratic oath to do no harm. <laughs> and so, so much of what Paul and I are working on is sharing experiences, building coalitions, facilitating education, and ultimately spreading this notion of that digital Hippocratic oath. So those who will replace us will benefit healthcare of the future without causing harm. I think that's fantastic. You guys are terrific. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, John, for joining me today for this great second show. Um, everybody, please check out their new book. I think you guys will enjoy it, Redefining the Boundaries of Medicine. Um, and I hope to see you guys certainly at HIMSS in April, HIMSS 23 in April, and if not uh, sooner, maybe at the Vive Conference. Um, and thank you to everyone for joining us today. Please tune in weekdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Pacific. As always, you can track me on Twitter at HIT Advisor and use the hashtag ThisJustinRadio so we can respond to your comments from the show. If you miss any of this episode or want to hear more, all my shows are posted at Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Our Heart Radio, Spreaker, Google Play, and TuneIn, um, and also some great new content at JustinBarnes.com. Thanks, everyone. Have a terrific uh, rest of your day. 